We're going to be beginning a series of messages. It uh, will not be a rather lengthy series because it's not a very lengthy book out of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Considered under the heading, When Believing Gets Tough. When Believing Gets Tough. And the first message that we'll see tonight in this series is the burden of believing. And you see this immediately in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. This is God speaking now. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth. To possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Now, when you see a passage beginning like this, the burden of Habakkuk, uh, we know that the message of the book is probably going to carry us through some rather deep waters. Uh, We would prefer, of course, it began by saying something like the blessing of Habakkuk or the victory of Habakkuk. Um, There'll be some of that. That's good news, but for now we're going to see this message that I call the burden of believing. God had showed Habakkuk a burden, something that bothered him, burdened him. I want to suggest to you tonight that as believers there are things that burden us that really do not bother those at all who are not believers. That is just the very fact that we believe in God because we are a Bible-believing, God-fearing people. That there are some things that we have to deal with that go along with it. Right quickly we can see that obviously we are burdened at the lost condition and the eternal destiny of those who do not receive Christ as their Savior. We see people who don't know Jesus. We see them living without God. We see them living without the Scriptures. We know where they're headed. But they don't seem to have a care in the world. It's not a burden to them. They don't get much concerned about people. And they don't look forward to heaven, many of them. They're not bothered by hell. We're burdened then because of the lost condition that we see. We're burdened when we see people living their lives without God, without Christ, without any concern for the Lord at all. No understanding of biblical truth at all. And that burdens us. It doesn't bother them. Uh, Many of them laugh at the Bible, scoff at it. Oh, you people holding on to your Bibles. 
You don't believe that old book, do you? I mean, if, if they have anything at all about the Word of God, it's scorn and derision. It doesn't bother them. But it bothers us. When we see a world that is going completely away from the truth of Scripture in almost every possible way. When what God calls wrong is being called right. It's not a burden to the unbelieving world, but it burdens us. We're burdened when we see a generation of young people with their attention almost totally consumed by those who are trying to influence them in every possible way, away from the things of God, to fill their minds, to change the way they're thinking, to give them foundational principles that uh, they're going to base their life on. That are not the truth at all. We see the incredible influence then that is being welded against this generation of people. It burdens us. It doesn't burden them. And so I bring these things up to you tonight merely as examples of things that maybe burden us as believers. Just because we're believers, because we believe God, because we're the children of God, because we believe the Bible, because we trust in God, then we have some burdens that those who are lost, uh, they don't have burdens about these things at all. But, but really, in this message, in this series of messages, we're going to see this a little bit differently. Another kind of burden that we experience. Because there's times when we believe God because we have to believe. Because the alternative to us not believing anymore is just unthinkable. And so we hold on to our faith in God. We believe in God even though we don't see what we were expecting to see. Even though we don't experience what we were expecting to experience. When we trust God. Because we have to trust God. Because the alternative to us is unthinkable. But things just aren't working out the way we'd please. I I read this week a a rather famous high-sounding quote from an atheist and a very famous scientist. This is what he said. He said, I'd rather have questions I can't answer than have answers I can't question. Uh, This is from an atheist, scientist. I would rather have questions I can't answer than to have answers I can't question uh, now, this was touted in, in this book. Uh, the person who quoted this uh, writer was just all excited, all enthusiastic about how high-sounding that was and how noble it sounded. But, you know, of course, me being uh, uh, just the person I am, you know, I, I just wished I could have talked to that guy, that scientist who said, I, I can't talk to him. Number one, he wouldn't talk to me probably. Uh, who am I that he'd talk to me? But number two, unfortunately, he's dead. He doesn't believe all that stuff anymore. But a lot of people still believe what he wrote, especially that quote, I would rather have questions I can't answer than have answers that I can't question. But you see, if I could talk to these people and they'd listen, I would just point out to them all the answers that science has these days that can't be questioned. They want to talk about all the things that uh, 
they have on their side of the world. I mean, he was putting that argument primarily at Christian people. But let's think about all the things that science has that they don't allow anybody to question. Question uh, their idea about human-induced global warming or climate change, as they like to call it now. Question that. <laughs> and just see how they respond. Oh, oh, no, that can't be questioned. You'd have to be an idiot to... Uh, well, you don't even believe in climate change. You've got to be a complete imbecile. Of course we believe in climate change. Uh, you see, they have all kinds of answers themselves that can't be questioned. I love to talk about how that for all of our, their postulating and positioning, science has long since, long ago, crossed the line into religion. They crossed the line into, into the religious world when they started. And by they, I'm talking about when science. When science started believing in a lot of things they can't prove. That's not science. Science is all about studying it and proving it. Put it under a microscope. Have independent studies made. And everybody performed the same experiments the same way. We learned about the scientific method in fifth grade science. You did too, most of you. But science has long since crossed over the line into religion because they believe things that can't be proved, but by the way, they can't be questioned either. So though that quote was aimed at believers, Christians specifically. I would also admit, and very quickly, that we have a whole lot of questions that can't be answered. We start where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we admit Though we believe that and we don't question it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where we start. We don't question it. We don't doubt it. But we admit it. That creates a lot of questions that we can't answer. The difference between us and, and the folks on the other side is, is we don't mind saying, I don't have an answer. I can't explain it. It is a matter of F. A-I-T-H. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it because God's Word says it. And that faith then becomes the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. But the atheists and the scientists deny that they believe anything. They claim it's all science. But the fact is they believe in all sorts of things, just not God. They're insulted if you point out their faith and prove that they have it. But they do just the same. And so within this realm in which we find ourselves living today, where there are so many things being thrown out to us on both sides of this issue, the scientific side, they have all their answers that can't be questioned. And we certainly have all of our answers that we don't question. That is absolutely true. But on both sides, we'd have to also acknowledge there's some questions we can't answer. There are times when this moves out of the theoretical realm, folks, and into a very personal realm where our faith is something that we hang on to 
that keeps us going even when there's no evidence to be seen anywhere. See, that's where Habakkuk is in this book. Uh, Habakkuk was looking around at what was happening in his country. He was looking at what was happening, what was going on against them, and he was crying out to God, and it just wasn't an answer that he was looking for. And that had put his faith under fire. I visited once a museum filled with many authentic Civil War artifacts. I saw a flag that had been carried in battle during the Civil War. It was carefully preserved and protected. The flag was faded, of course, tattered, of course, but that's not what caught your attention. The flag was riddled with bullets and shrapnel. You see, it wasn't a museum-quality, carefully preserved, perfect specimen of a flag. It was a flag that was tattered by the battle that it had been in and that showed the marks. If I could somehow reach into all of your hearts tonight and pull out your faith, as much as we would like to think that our faith is a museum-quality showpiece, ah, just a perfect faith, uh, if I could pull out your faith and you could look at mine, our faith would be battle-scarred. You could see the battles that it's been through. It's been through a bunch. It has got you through a bunch. The very fact that you're here tonight and still believing is a testament to the fact that your faith endures. It's been through a battle, but it's still going And it has many battles to go through ahead. One writer pointed out that uh, in American Christianity today, we've come almost to take grace and victory for granted. Uh, He went on to say that we don't find grace amazing anymore. We find judgment amazing. We find justice amazing. In fact, if we start contemplating the possibility of the judgment of God... For a lot of Christians, especially American Christians today, it's almost completely outside their belief system. You might have heard of Rabbi Harold Kushner. Uh, Rabbi Kushner was confronted by the death of his son Aaron. He died at 14 from a horrible genetic disorder that caused premature aging so that at 14 he died as an old man. He wrote a book then asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And his book proposes an idea that is known in theological circles as theistic uh, finitism. Theistic finitism. This is obviously then a belief in a deity or God that is limited. Not an infinite God, a God of infinite power and ability but a God of finite power. In fact, he would say it plainly in his book, there's there's some things God can't do. You might have read his book and you may have enjoyed it, but I want to warn you that Rabbi Kushner's conclusions were heretical. Our God is omnipotent. Our God can do anything. And while he can do anything, he is also good and holy and righteous and trustworthy. 
Those things are not incongruent, no matter how difficult they might be. And while I'm sympathetic to the fact that he had to watch his son die a lingering premature death, and he prayed, no telling how many prayers for God to heal him, and he didn't. I, I acknowledge that. I know how difficult that is for him, but that doesn't mean that we have to believe in a lesser God. Never get theology from people who've rejected Jesus Christ because they don't understand God at all if they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't understand the great mystery of good and evil outside of the cross, as W.C. sang about so eloquently earlier tonight. But there are questions, you see, that are even more disturbing than why bad things happen to good people. That is a disturbing question. But here's another one. Why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, that's the one I struggle with. And you find that all over the Bible, too. And even then, the greatest philosophical question at all, if you want a good one, this is it. Since the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one, why do good things happen to anybody? The big issue is not how there could be evil in the world, but how there could be goodness in the world. You'll never answer those questions without the cross of Jesus Christ. The more we know about evil and the more we know about people and the more we know about darkness and violence and the horrible things that people do to other people, we should be far more surprised by grace and mercy than we are by judgment. Eternity in hell makes a lot of sense in light of what a lot of people are doing and what they're doing to other people. But eternity in heaven, that has only one explanation. The cross of Jesus Christ. So you see tonight, I've, I've gone around this rambling little trip around philosophy and all these things. I hope I haven't lost you. And if I have, maybe I can bring you back here because I did all this for a reason. I, I was trying to show you what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how that sometimes our faith becomes a burden to us. We believe God because we have to. We believe God because the alternative is unthinkable. But even as believers, we have to admit that we are bothered by a lot of things. We're troubled, concerned, burdened. And there are times when we're compelled to keep believing because nothing else makes sense to us. Even though we can't see the goodness of God anywhere. We remember when Jesus spoke to Simon Peter and told him, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Years later, Simon Peter, in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, he would write that the trying of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. I wonder what Simon Peter was thinking about. You think he might be thinking about the times when his faith was put to the test? Famously so. When Jesus told him it would be. And though it be tried by fire, he says, that it would endure. You know, Jesus told him, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. How many of you know tonight that our great intercessor, our great high priest, our comforter who is at the right hand of the Father is still interceding for us for the same thing. That your faith fail not. 
it didn't fail. Simon Peter's faith didn't fail. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, yours won't either. The prophet Habakkuk, though, in this little book is going through that time when believing is tough. He's going to get through it just like Simon Peter did. His faith will not fail. But along the way, I hope that we'll pick up some things by looking at this little book. Some things that will help us when believing gets tough. And so the first situation that Habakkuk is going to present to us in this passage tonight uh, that causes believing to become a burden was that God was not responding on demand. God was not responding on demand. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save. You see, Habakkuk is turning up the intensity of his cries in this passage from the everyday kind of crying or asking for help to the kind of cry that happens when someone is attacked and they scream out for help. Help me. Somebody pinned in a car screaming for help. See, it's one thing to be the beggar who stands on the corner and maybe comes up to you on the street saying, can, you know, can you spare some change? Got a dollar? That's one kind of cry. But it's another kind of cry when you're crying out to be rescued because someone is attacking you. And that's exactly what he saw. He said, I'm crying out because of violence. It may be difficult for that person to stand and ask for help day after day when so few respond, but there is some response. It's bad that they've been put in that situation. Even if they put themselves in that situation, it's still bad. And we know what it's like when we're burdened. Maybe we've got a cry. We've got a concern. We take that to the Lord, maybe repeatedly. We, we know what that means. But Habakkuk ramps up the intensity I'm screaming out because of this violent attack, God. I've been screaming for help. You ever heard anybody scream for help? You ever heard that? I mean scream. It's a terrible thing to be put in that situation where you have to scream for help. It's even worse when you scream for help but nobody responds. This is where Habakkuk was. You see, he was looking at the approach of the armies of the Chaldeans, or as we know it better, the Babylonians. It was looking bad for them as these armies were large and horrible and terrible and fierce, and they had swept across nation after nation after nation, and now they're knocking on the door of the Holy Land. Habakkuk sees them there. He was concerned because he was crying out to God for deliverance, but nothing was happening. And what God had showed then, Habakkuk, that was such a burden to him, is easily identified. God, he says, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. The law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. That could be a headline in major cities all across America tonight. What was he seeing? That people were plundering. Looting, stealing, taking whatever they wanted violently, uh, violent attacks upon one another. This is the internal problems that he saw inside of his own nation. 
There was strife, horrible division. They were terribly divided, contending, arguing among themselves. The law was powerless. The law would stand by and let these things happen. There was no justice against those who were committing all of this terrible evil. This is what he saw on the inside of his nation. And apparently as a result of seeing this, Habakkuk had been crying out to God. God, you've got to do something. God, something has got to happen. Our nation can't keep going like this. Has anybody besides me been praying that prayer for the United States of America? God, we can't keep going like this. Please help us. Pray for our leaders. Habakkuk had been crying out to God. He didn't see anything happen. The nation just kept struggling. Just when he thought that it was bad, and really, really bad, then he has to start screaming out because now he sees, on top of all of this internal stuff, Here's a foreign power, the enemy, the Chaldeans that were coming against them like a flood. And this foreign power was out to do them harm. This is so much like the United States right now, it's uncanny. You may take comfort in the fact that the army isn't at our borders right now. We don't see troop ships massing up on the west coast or the east coast or the Gulf of Mexico. Doesn't look like we're about to be invaded by a foreign army. But, you know, we live in a world where they don't have to invade us to invade us. Foreign powers are hacking into our security systems. And our own government has been paying hostage money to pay us out. Our people are being held captive in foreign countries all across us land. Our land has been the victim of a horrible outbreak of disease and it seems almost certain that this virus was manufactured, maybe even released on purpose, we don't know. What we do know is that China and Russia have now teamed up with the Arab nations. That's happening. And this alliance is out to get two things mainly, us and Israel. Us and Israel. Doesn't look good. Like Habakkuk then of old, we look at our nation and we see exactly what he saw. We see the violence. We see the plundering. We see the breakdown of law and order. We see the almost complete absence of justice. Our criminals are just released wholesale into our streets. Uh, That's all over the news these days. And then we see ourselves as a nation, maybe growing weaker and under threat from foreign powers. Habakkuk was seeing the enemy within, and that's us. We've met the enemy, and he's us. There's the enemy within. But then he saw the enemy without, and he'd been crying out to God, God, do something. Please help us. And now here comes the Chaldeans. Uh, We can certainly see a national application to this, but sometimes the application is much more personal. You see, sometimes our concern is not for the United States of America. Sometimes our concern is for our kids. Sometimes our concern is for a spouse. Uh, Sometimes our concern is for a brother or sister or neighbor or, yes, even ourselves. 
When we look and see a problem and we cry out to God to solve the problem. And we say like Habakkuk, how long will I cry? How long, Lord, will I cry? You see, it's a a burden to us as believers when God doesn't respond on demand. I realize tonight that uh, what I'm preaching to you is not real popular in in today's American Christianity. Uh, uh, I'd I'd be a whole lot more popular with Christianity at large if, if I was telling you, man, you can just speak victory over all this. Well, you just claim it. You've got authority. Oh, there's all kinds of voices telling you that, telling people that, and very popular. But you know, I'd rather be true to the Scriptures than to be popular. And the fact is that just because we cry out to God is no guarantee that God is going to respond on demand. That burdens us when it happens. Especially as the intensity grows. So God, it's a burden to us and a burden to our faith when God doesn't respond on demand. And then it's a burden to our faith when He doesn't do what we expect. (laughs) I've used this passage over and over again. I've talked about it a lot in many different sermons. Because in my inelegant translation of what God told Habakkuk, He said, Habakkuk. Uh, I'm, I'm, you want me to do something. He said, I'm already doing something. And you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Uh, but then he went ahead and told him anyway. And, and that's what it was. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. Verse 5. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Habakkuk, you see, had cried out for his nation and the problems in his nation. And instead of those problems being fixed and solved and getting better, now they are being attacked by a foreign power. So now it's even worse and he's not just crying out to God, but he he is screaming in terror, God... When when are you going to do something? And God says, I've already done something. That Chaldean army you see out there, God says, verse 6, I raised them up. The raising of an army might not take on the same connotation to us that it did in ancient times. The raising of an army was a, a huge undertaking It was done usually by wealthy people who had the means to accomplish such a thing. And and they would go about then to raise an army. And so what God is saying is, He's taking complete credit for them. This army would not exist, but I called them out. I have raised them up. I have brought them into being. God warned us long ago in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55 and 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Which reminds us that God thinks differently than we think. And because He thinks differently than us, He acts differently than us. We can look at a situation and decide what to do, or look at a situation and decide what we would do. We have some idea. 
Can we be honest enough tonight to admit that there's been a time or two that we've asked God to do something and then told Him what He needed to do? Has anybody besides me? Y'all, I I, I got my glasses, but I I think I see one or two of you nodding out there. Yeah. You see, we, we think that God will, will approach this situation the way that I would approach it. That what I want is, therefore, I mean, this is what I would do. This is what seems right to me. This makes sense to me. And so we project that then on God. Well, well God, this is, this is what you're... But God responds, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. I don't think like you think, and therefore I don't do the things that... You think I ought to do. You see, it's so difficult for us to wrap our head around the idea that God would bring judgment upon us. We can see God bringing judgment on wicked people. But God's judgment is seldom so specific as to bring judgment upon the wicked and protect the righteous. Now, He does do that. The Ark of Noah is one great example. Amen? I mean, God wiped out the whole earth, but he saved Noah and his family. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered Lot. (coughs) He would have delivered all of Lot's family, but not all of them left. His wife stayed behind, and no doubt he lost sons and daughters and everything that he had left behind in Sodom. Lost it all. Even though Noah was delivered, he still spent 120 years. Whatever else he was doing with his life came to a screeching, grinding halt. He spent 120 years building the ark and preaching righteousness without making a single convert. Well, you see, God does move in judgment, and sometimes he preserves his people from that judgment, but not always. I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego this morning. I'll mention them again tonight along with Daniel. Those four men would live and die as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God's judgment fell on the nation of Israel. Daniel was a righteous man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were people of great faith. They lived God, loved God, served God. Even in difficult times, they refused to defile themselves. They weren't doing something wrong. They were doing everything right. Yet the judgment God brought on the nation came on them too. Habakkuk was seeing all this shaping up as he was crying out to God because of the evil and the wickedness of his land and now they're under attack from a foreign power. You see, this is one of the burdens that we people of faith carry. We may be praying for revival in our land, but without knowing it, We may be praying for God's judgment to fall on our land. Just think about that for a moment. That's what happened to Habakkuk. You see, God and God alone knows when a nation has crossed the line. And the only thing that will turn them back is judgment. And God has seen that time over and over again, and He has moved in it over and over again. 
God was raising up the Chaldeans as instruments of his judgment. Now, Habakkuk wasn't quiet about that. He had a response. He had something to say. Verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? You see, it's hard to argue with omnipotence, but uh, it isn't impossible. Uh, wait a minute, God. Uh, these are, these are, this is a wicked people here. You know how terrible the Babylonians are. You know how terrible the Chaldeans are. I mean, yeah, we've got our problems, but we're not as bad as them. It, it, it's not for us to die under your judgment, God. It's for them to die. We're the good guys. We, we have our problems, sure, but we're, we're a great nation. We still tend to argue for our moral superiority as a nation. And I will grant you that there are some ways, there are many ways that our nation is a wonderful nation. And I still tell you right now, I would rather live in the United States of America than any other place on the planet. I'm thankful for the way that God has blessed our nation. I love our country. I tear up when we say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the Star Spangled Banner. I, I love our nation and I'm thankful for it. But can we really argue that our nation is morally superior to any other nation right now? When you think of the tons of smut and evil that our nation is exporting all over the world every minute of every day. When you think about how nearly our nation is equally divided between those who are believers and those who are not, between those who honor God and those who reject God and mock God, it's hard for us to argue for the moral superiority of our nation, but that's what Habakkuk was making. Now, well, God, we've got problems, but we're not near as bad as them. Surely, you can't raise up a nation that's way worse than us. I mean, God, that, that nation don't believe in you at all. They're complete atheists. they complete false religion. They, God, they, they don't believe in you at all. They're completely violent. They, honor, they don't honor you. They don't honor anybody. They, they fear not God. They don't honor men. They're evil to the core. Our faith, you see, is burdened when God doesn't respond on demand, but our faith is also burdened when God works in ways that we don't like, especially if God begins to talk about judgment. The third thing, then, that is presented in our text, we'll jump down to chapter 2 and be done. Uh, it, we're burdened when God tarries. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Well, Habakkuk's had his say and he's going to count to three. I'm going to sit up here on this rampart and look around and watch and just see what God has to say. He's, I know he's going to correct me. After all, I've been arguing with omnipotence here. But I'm just going to sit up here and just see what happens. Doesn't have to wait long. Verse 2, the Lord answered me and said, 
write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Uh, Though it tarries, it may not come as speedily as, as you might think it would, but it's going to come, and when it comes, it's going to come without delay. And so you write this down, and you write it plain, and you write it clear, so that anybody can see it, and anybody can understand it. And when they see it and they understand it, what are they going to do? Run. (laughs) Run. Run. Now, God was going to deal with the Chaldeans. And he said that back in verse 11. And we'll not take the time to go back and read all that tonight. But let's just say that God referred to the time when the leader of the Chaldeans would have a mind change that would offend And this would play out in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar looked out over the mighty city of Babylon and the mighty armies of Babylon. What did he say? Is this not mighty Babylon that I have built? And immediately God's judgment fell on him and he lost his mind and went out and grazed in the fields like cattle, the Bible says. Why? Because God was the one who had raised him up. God took credit for that. He's already said it. God was the one who raised him up. And he should have known that. And so God held him accountable. But it was more. God would say also, in, uh, back in verse 11, God would say to him, Now listen, this king is going to have a mind change. And, and he is going then to, to say that it is his God that had made all this. And again, that played out with Nebuchadnezzar. When he made that image of gold, and required that everybody bow down to it. Who was the image of? Nebuchadnezzar. Sure. Who was his God? Nebuchadnezzar was. What did he say? Is this not mighty Babylon that I have built? God says he'll have a mind change. and He'll offend. And judgment then would fall. And of course it did. God would raise up the Medo-Persian dynasty to bring judgment on Babylon. Habakkuk was all been out of shape. And yes, it was a complaint. It was arguing. Habakkuk was arguing and complaining. His faith was burdened and, and Trey was troubled because God didn't respond on demand, because God wasn't doing what he expected him to do, because God was tarrying. But the fact is, God tells him very quickly, I'm working a far longer and more detailed work than you could ever possibly know. There was more to this story than Habakkuk could have ever imagined. And I wonder how many times God would say the same thing to us. See, God has made promises to us, and God has promised to provide for us. He's promised to supply all of our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He is told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God has made some wonderful promises to us as His people. And yet sometimes we look at our life and we look at what's happening and and we don't see those promises. And in spite of everything that we know about God and everything we know about Christ, there's times when we see things in a pretty self-centered way, even if we're not self-centered particularly. We still want to see how things are going to play out for me and for my family, 
my business. I ask you tonight, are you waiting on God for something? How do you like that? One writer said, well, you know, it's hard to wait on God. I disagree. If God tarries, we wait. If God tarries, we wait. But this is made especially difficult for us when we see God coming through for somebody else. And it plays out all the time. We even see it right here in our own church family. We pray for two people, both with terrible illnesses. One lives, the other dies. We see it play out all the time. Is the one who lived somehow better than the one who died? That was the argument that Habakkuk was making. We're more righteous than they, and therefore we don't deserve to die. We're, we're not the ones who ought to get the judgment. You see, God is not indifferent to our cries. He's not. But we have to remember tonight the lesson that Habakkuk demonstrates for us in these passages. God has His own way of doing things. And He has a way of doing them at exactly the right time. They may not be the things that we want or the things that we expect. But our faith in God is still there because He is still trustworthy. I have to admit to you, sometimes I, I have to cringe a little bit at how easily we say God is good all the time. It's a whole lot easier to say that in Sunday morning on church when we're all in here shouting happy. But I promise you, I've been in some hospital rooms where if you'd said that, it would have been insulting. Still true. But much more difficult to say. Revelation 8 is a time when God is unleashing judgment on the world. We'll close up with this tonight. The angel with the seventh bowl is about to unleash the seven trumpet judgments upon the earth. And there was an eerie, unusual silence in heaven for about a half an hour. We're told that the creatures, the living creatures, the seraphim around the throne of God cease not day or night at all times, all the time. They, they are going all the time saying, holy, holy, holy. Must have been an eerie silence. Almost as surprising as the silence is the fact that time entered into the eternal realm. There was silence in heaven, the Bible says, for about a half an hour. Read it for yourself when you get home. Revelation 8. An angel was called that brought much incense to be offered before the throne, the Bible says, with the prayers of all the saints. That's a precious passage to us. Who knows how many of God's people throughout all of these generations had prayed to God for deliverance from their oppressors, from their persecutors, from the evil men, the evil tyrants, the evil people who were persecuting them and killing them, yes, and working all manners of unspeakable horrors against them. Who knows how many prayers had been prayed, yes, 
even prayers for retribution and for vengeance. Many of them recorded in the scripture, How long, O Lord? Well, it's significant that in Revelation chapter 8, God stopped everything. There was silence that went on and on and on. 30 minutes of silence. And then God brought up all of the prayers of the saints. They had not been forgotten. They had not been ignored. They had not been rejected. Just wasn't time yet. But now it's time for those prayers to be answered. And there they are. They're brought up. And with that incense, they're brought before the throne of God. And before that terrible time of judgment is unleashed on the planet, God made sure that He paused and let us know that those prayers had not gone unanswered. It's one of the hardest lessons that we ever learn in our faith is that God's delays does not mean that God has denied It's just not time yet. Burdens to our faith. I'm glad to be able to tell you that this passage is going to end up, this this book is going to end up on a high note, not a low note. But you have to go through the low stuff to get to the high stuff. We have one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. I mean, it's got to be in the top five. Coming up in just a few verses. The just shall live by his faith. That's the backup. We're going to see that this was not made in some museum quality showpiece kind of faith, but that a faith that was tattered by battles, but still there. Still there. Let's stand together, please.